And that gets me to the, the second part of, I think, sort of, that I would take away from the history, which is the importance of working class leadership of institutions. And one thing that I think is really remarkable about the moment in the 1940s and 1950s is you see the emergence of these black trade unionists, as I talked about, really key community leaders who had bases in not just the trade union movement, but in, in their churches and civil rights organizations. And this gave them the ability to not only mobilize people, but to influence the agenda in a way that could actually affect policy, that could change, change laws. Hey folks, Stephen Pitts here, host of Black Work Talk. And I'm here with my good friend and my co-host, Bill Fletcher. Bill, what's up, man? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, man. It's It's been raining cats and dogs here, and the temperature's going to drop, but otherwise everything's go, you know, cool. What does drop mean? It's gone from 60 this morning, and by tonight it will be about 25. Sounds good. Sounds good. Good, 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 good. So, Bill, before we get started, man, I want to tell the audience that you know, this is the fourth episode of season two, and it's been going really good. I've gotten good feedback. But also, people should know, this is the beginnings of our first annual fundraising push. We're trying to increase our sustainer base. And our goal is we want to sign up 60 new sustainers. So please go to, to Patreon and sign up at whatever level you want to, whatever level makes you feel comfortable about. I'll tell you more about this at the end of the show. But Bill, you know I love sports. Yeah. And um, not only are we in the midst of, of this lockout in baseball, Mm-hmm. But also this kind of thing blew up with, in the NFL and coaching, where this brother, Brian Flores, sued the NFL on a class action basis around hiring problems. What's your take, man? I'm glad that it's finally happened. Um, you know, the, the NFL has always struck me as almost a kind of an apartheid system. Uh, you know, you have the largely... Uh, African-American workforce. And then you have, at least in the stadiums, uh, white people. And then you have the rich white owners. And you have almost no representation at the level of coaching. And I think that it was absolutely about time that, that something was done about this. And I think that, you know, similar battles have to take place in other sports, like in baseball. You know, the problem, the issue that Jackie Robinson was regularly raising and raised uh, quite literally right before he died about the lack of of, uh, coaches, uh, you know, of African descent. Um, It's it's an issue that emerges and declines and reemerges. And I'm hoping that there's some sustainability now. Now, I haven't really tried to look at it a lot through like a political lens, I'll say it, nor am I simply enjoying the game, right? But as I begin to think through it, what's interesting is the fact that, one, the players are well-paid, but they're still workers in a lot of ways, right? That's right. But the coaches have some authority, and they are bosses, but they're more like like you might call supervisors in a factory. Then you have the owners being owners. And so you have a situation where the coaches are kind of in the in between with some authority, but also not having some authority as well. And then I thought about 
some of the answers people have to solve the problem, they say oftentimes what we need is more simply more minority ownership. And we have more minority ownership that'll solve the problem. And I thought back to, but you know it's better than I do, back when folk were discussing integrating baseball in the late 40s, mm-hmm. one proposal was to simply bring the entire Negro Leagues into the major, quote unquote major leagues. That's right. And that way you kind of integrate the entire structure of baseball, not just at the, at the player level. And what was done, obviously, at the player level. And so the Negro League owners got wiped out, basically. That's right. And so one time I was looking at the issue of what does it mean to really change a sport fundamentally? Is it kind of integrating at the player level, integrating at the at the coach level? Is it getting more you no know, ownership? At the same time, Bill, if you think about it, changing the color of the owners doesn't change the relationship between owners and coaches and players. I think that notion that representation is important, been sufficient, needs to be elevated even in this case as well. Because to the extent that we have bad practices in the NFL, they go beyond just hiring coaches, right? Mm-hmm. Th- those come from structural forces that may be that we have, if you change the nature, well, the nature of the race of the ownership, race or gender, that may not alter the actual practices themselves. Just, some, just my th- last thoughts on that. Well, no, I think that that's right. And I think that an example of that outside of sports is black entertainment television. Robert Johnson made a mint with BET, but the fact of black ownership of BET did not fundamentally transform either the media industry or nor necessarily uh, his own company. Uh, He had a very hostile attitude towards unions, for instance. So I think that you're right to raise this broader transformational issue. And if we had more time, it really would be worth talking about what happened in the 1940s with baseball, because you're identifying something that could have changed history in a qualitative way. When we talk about kind of the the issues of not just the middle management, call it, and representation, and you, and you mentioned like Bob Johnson's attitude toward the, the unions and, and black labor in BET. That's a good way to pivot to, to our guest, Will Jones, because um, Will has done a lot of good, great work looking at black unionists and the role in building power both within the community and beyond. And so, Will, I'm so glad you're on board, man. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with both of you. For my audience, Bill is a professor at the University of Minnesota. So I guess when, when Fletcher was talking about the um, issue of cold, you're saying 25, bring it on, right? How cold is the way you are, man? That's like a heat wave. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you can have a heat wave via, via Bill, and I keep quiet my heat wave out here, right, in the 60s. Okay, but, but, but Will, you've done a lot of great work on different elements of, of black labor and black workers and black unionists. What caught my attention was your phenomenal book on the role of black labor and organized the March on Washington. I apologize, I don't have the exact title, but it's a, it's a tremendous book. So one feel free to drop the title, by the way, but I, I can't enough encourage the audience to, to read the book itself. Will, why don't you give us a, a quick overview of the, the, the structure and the nature of that book he wrote? Okay, well, the book, the title's easy to remember, so you don't have an excuse. It's the March on Washington. Yo, dude, I'm 68 years old. I got many excuses, okay? <laughs> <laughs> The subtitles, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. Uh, And 
the the core of it is, as you said, sort of showing the role that um, that black trade unionists played in building the March on Washington in 1963, but also tracing that march back to a march that was originally planned uh, during the Second World War, um, and really trying to demonstrate how the march that we know that we usually associate with Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech comes out of a long history of trade union activism and placing the concerns of black workers at the center of the civil rights agenda. So connecting demands for economic justice with demands for racial equality. And really, I think the central message of that march was that the two really can't be separated, that, that it's really impossible to realize an agenda for racial equality uh, without an agenda for economic justice. So well, you mentioned that it had its antecedents in marches um, that were just talked about in the 40s. Expand on that a little bit, please, could you? Right. Well, so during the Second World War, the idea for the March on Washington emerged out of a movement that was protesting discrimination uh, both in the in the armed forces during the Second World War, uh, but in some ways more importantly within the defense industries. And this emerged actually before the U.S. formally entered the war, so before the attack on Pearl Harbor. The U.S. was supplying weapons and equipment to the Allies in Europe and in Asia. And Franklin Roosevelt, the president, famously said the United States, even if the U.S. doesn't formally enter the war, it will be what he called the arsenal of democracy, right? That it will provide the weapons and the equipment for democracies to defend themselves uh, in Europe and Asia. And black people said, you know, how can we talk about defending democracy in Europe and Asia when we don't have a democracy here at home? And the, 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 the thing that they latched onto was the fact that the army remained segregated and highly discriminatory. So it wasn't just segregated, black soldiers were shut out of most leadership positions, most combat uh, positions uh, relegated to, to um, service positions within the, mi the military for the most part. But they also latched onto the fact that the war mobilization, which was being driven by federal money, so the federal government was pouring money into retooling factories to, you know, shift from making, you know, domestic uh, necessities, automobiles and trains and things like that, and to shift them into producing weapons and airplanes and uh, battleships. And almost all of those factories discriminated on a basis of race. So they would, um, they, uh, they, they would not hire black workers. And this is at the the moment is at the at the very end of the Great Depression. The uh, this mobilization essentially ended the Great Depression for white workers because it meant that there were, it, we went from very high rates of unemployment in the 1930s uh, to a labor shortage in these in, uh, in in mostly in in cities that industrial cities both in in the north and in the south, and so for white workers it meant the depression was over, but for black workers. Black workers were still living in the Great Depression. And so they said, you know, if we're going to be serious about this arsenal of democracy, uh, the federal government needs to ensure that anybody who is 
qualify for a job gets a job in these factories. And so that was the basic demand of the of a march, a national march that was planned in 1941, led by A. Philip Randolph, the socialist and trade union leader, uh, organized by Randolph's union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but also joined by the NAACP, Black fraternities and sororities, Black religious organizations came on board. And by the summer of 1941, they estimated they could bring 100,000 people to Washington uh, to protest, uh, demanding, again, the integration of the military and a federal prohibition on discrimination in the defense industries. That march was called off at the last minute when President Roosevelt, after stonewalling, agreeing, you know, refusing to meet with the leadership, uh, finally agreed uh, and said that he would create what was known as the FEPC, the Fair Employment Practices Commission, which uh, prohibited employment discrimination in the defense industries. And that, you know, in some ways was the 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 first really big victory of what we now know as the civil rights movement. It, it um it was seen uh, in black newspapers said this was the best you know this was the biggest uh, move that the federal government had made toward racial equality since Reconstruction. It was seen at the time as a massive victory, um, but it was a temporary victory, and it really sort of set in motion a 20-year movement that would in some ways culminate in 1963 with the, with the march uh, that was modeled on that march that had been called off uh, 20 years earlier. Well, when I thought about you talking, um, you know, I know this is the, our first episode in Black History Month, by the way, but that's not only why you're on. That, that the, the theme here discussed power and the, the power of Black workers. And you're giving a good example of really how when black unionists led by Ephraim Randolph and others began to organize, we saw the power to, to change. He said, well, he says also interesting that simply it was temporary. It's an important theme to talk about, we'll go in a different direction later on down the road, is when do you have victories that may not be permanent, but are more durable, let's say, and what are the conditions for that? Because a lot of times we have kind of upsurge in activism, an upsurge in kind of social upheaval, but we see a quick dying down of certain things as well. And so to me, an important question is through history, understanding how you get more durable successes versus ones that are dramatic, but maybe more transitory in nature. But I, I you started talking about how, you mentioned before how the Marshall Washington movement in the early 40s was a precursor to the Marshall Washington 63. My memory of things from my readings and your book, Will, was that prior to the actual public mobilization around the 63 March, the Black unions wanted to have a march themselves. They thought that they were kind of um, disbased, disrespected by the AFL-CIO. And so they had a group called the, the NALC, Negro American Labor Council. And they themselves were protesting. That that a correct rec- um, remembrance of your writings and the story? Yeah, it is. I think there's a couple of things to remember. I mean, thinking about the sort of permanent victory or, or lasting victory. When A. Philip Randolph called off the first march in 1941, a lot of people who had worked on that march were furious at him. And they felt that he had sort of sold out. And he didn't even win all of their victories. I mean, all of their demands. They had wanted 
the integration of the armed forces, which Roosevelt did not do. So a lot of people felt like he had sort of caved in too early. And his position was actually, he wasn't quite sure the march would actually work. He said 100,000 people would show up, but he didn't really have any way of knowing how many people were going to be there, right? And and it was this sort of, you know, it was a very quickly organized thing. So in some ways, he might have been bluffing, right? I mean, he might, or he might have just had no idea really who was going to show up. And he said, you know, we need to make sure that we know who's going to show up, right? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to actually go through with an event like that, it's got to be big and it's got to be massive. And it wasn't clear that that actually could have happened in 1941. But by 1963, I mean, as we know, it was huge. It was a, it was the largest march in American history at the time. It was um, a quarter million people showed up. And a lot of the book that I focus, what I focus on in the book is essentially how did that happen? How do you get a quarter million people to, uh, to come to Washington, D.C.? You know, I'll, I'll add on a weekday, right? So people were taking off work, uh, traveling across the country, mostly by train or by bus. So this was a massive endeavor. And the way that happened was, you know, a story of organizing over the course of 20 years. And at the core of that is this group of black trade unionists. They're a different generation from A. Philip Randolph. You know, they're people who, you know, came of age in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, they were part of the surge of the CIO unions. And by the late 1940s, you see really the first generation of black trade unionists who have significant power within industrial, the industrial union movement. So they're in the United Auto Workers Union. They're in a lot of the needle trades unions, uh, the warehouse workers unions. Um, and they, uh, on one hand, you know, there's a significant portion of these, you know, activists, trade union activists, but they also represent significant portions of shop workers on the shop floor, both by the way, black and white, right? So, or of many races, right? So it's not just that they have significant sort of local power. A lot of these people are also important figures in their communities. They are, you know, the deacons at churches. They are often branch presidents or branch officers of NAACP uh, branches. They organize within the NAACP, these labor and industry councils that are sort of local connect, you know, sort of ways in which uh, trade unionists across unions can meet together and talk about civil rights issues and coordinate them with NAACP branches and with the federal organization or the national organization. So by the 1950s, they have incredible sort of reach and clout within their own communities so that when they go and they say, let's go to March on Washington, you know, this is not a stretch. They know who to go to. They can book trains and buses and they know how to fill those vehicles and make sure that they're full and they get people to Washington. So it's a very long process that I go into some detail with about how do these trade unionists put themselves in the position where they can actually mobilize people. And I think that's, you know, that's really the key difference between 1941 and 1963 that and, and you know is why we see such an incredible outturning of people uh, in August of 1963. 
Well, two points, uh, one point and one question. Randolph always struck me as a very complicated character. In the 30s, he called off at the last minute a strike that was supposed to take place in the Pullman industry. Then in 41, he calls off this march. And it was my understanding that he was for calling off the 63 march at some juncture. I don't remember the reference that I uh, on that, but he seemed like he was very good at bluffing. And so I was curious as to what you thought about that. The second thing is the history of the 63 March, at least the public history, is about King. And few people know the role that, you know, regular people know about the role of Randolph or Baird Rustin or the other people that were really behind this thing. Why do you think that the black trade unionist role is so under-acknowledged in the 63 March? So basically two questions there. Right. I mean, the the question about Randolph is, um, he. I think that there's a couple of things that inform his sort of strategy and it evolves over time. He is very cautious. And, you know, I mean, and you can imagine that, you know, he's somebody who got politically active during the First World War. By 1940, he's been at it for 20 years. <laughs> By 1963, he's been at it for 40 years. And he had reason to be cautious, right? He sort of knew the possibilities um, and he knew the limitations of, I think, of a movement. He was also fairly conservative. I, I mean, in a sense of a, you know, as, as conservative as a black socialist trade unionist can be. But he was, by 1963, he was on the executive council of the AFL. I think he was cautious of frontal confrontation with the AFL-CIO in a way that a lot of the younger trade unionists were not. And that gets actually to Stephen's question about this march on the, the, the original idea for the march in... In 19, it was in 1960, so the sort of reviving this idea came from actually the, the leadership of the AFL-CIO attacking Randolph for criticizing racism within the union movement. And the Negro American Labor Council, the younger trade unionists, they said, let's march on the, on the AFL-CIO. And the, the original idea for a march on Washington was to go to the trade union headquarters in Washington. And that is what Randolph disagreed with. He didn't want to, he felt it was dangerous in the context of a, you know, pretty, a growing assault on organized labor in general. He didn't want to be seen as taking a, you know, a sort of public stand uh, against the AFL-CIO. The way in which that got papered over a little bit was that they focused on passing a federal law. That, in fact, the, the, the law that would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so it sort of shifted the attention away from the AFL onto Congress and that he was more comfortable with a confrontation against Congress, right, than, than against the AFL-CIO. So it was partially strategic, partially a sort of uh, an alliance. But I think, yeah, I mean, you're right. Randolph is a very complex character and he, um, you know, and he has a very long history, you know, a long life of activism that I think informs his approach to these questions I want to follow up on about Randolph being interesting, you know, because it's fascinating, Will, as you're talking about that whole sequence. 
what I'm hearing, he's criticizing the AFL-CIO. They slap him down. He censor him formally for doing so. Folk come to his defense. He deflects. That's a fascinating. I don't want to get into some sort of armchair psychology stuff. That's fascinating. Because the, the deflection into the legislation did not deal at all with his, his, his criticism. It wasn't like in mine. It's his criticisms, right? They didn't deal with that, that at all, basically. So that's a fascinating idea that someone, someone had that kind of personality, I'll put it that way, to, have that, to yeah. go through that kind of process. Right. I mean, the legislation did actually, you know, I mean, the, the 64 Act prohibits discrimination by unions. And so that in part, but it was that what was important was that the sort of the 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 responsibility for addressing the discrimination was shifted to Congress. And a lot of the, you know, the sort of top leadership of the AFL said, you know, hey, we're with you, but we can't get our unions to go along with it. Right. And so it, it's kind of freed them of that issue. But you're right that it's I mean, he in, it was also in part that he didn't want to take a sort of public overt stand against the AFL-CIO. He was, you know, he f saw himself as working within within the AFL-CIO and he didn't want to take that public. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that there, the people who were sort of defending him were much more confrontational than he was willing to be. And the last thing, Bill, I'll give back to you, Bill. The whole notion that you have, I'll say, two generations of black radicals, kind of the, the Randolph generation and the younger folk, have different stances. It tells us that that radicals is contextual. Oftentimes we have some of this is the X principles or else sort of thing. But clearly Randolph was radical in some sense. He's a socialist, right? He organized black unionists. He threatened or whatever marches and Washingtons. But at the same time, he shied away, shied away from some confrontations while young folk did not. So this whole idea that we look at radicalism, we should see it being not just some principles that are, that are absolute, but very much rooted in some actual concrete context. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really true. Given the centrality of black labor in the march and the fact that it was King who was in effect uniting with an NALC-sponsored project, why is it that the role of black labor in the march just seemed to vanish, that you never hear it, hear yeah, about it, yeah. except, you know, you've written about it, and every so often there's been articles. But by and large, we don't, regular people have no sense of this. Yeah, it's really fascinating. You know, a great example of that is like, I mean, the, the original idea for the march was, it was going to be a march for on Washington for jobs. And... They were, you know, A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rustin and the NALC were ready to go. And it was actually Anna Arnold Hedgeman, who's a completely forgotten, really important figure in the march and in the civil rights movement more broadly. She said, look, there's this movement in the in the South for voting rights and for integration. And you can't just ignore that. Right. You need to do something to reach out to these people. So she set up a meeting between A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King and said, kind of, you know, try to put something together. And that's where the slogan for jobs and freedom comes from. Mm -hmm. it, so it was originally, you know, it was the jobs slogan that came first. Um, and you're right that we have completely, I think, forgotten that. I think it's, um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think in part, um, you know, the way in which we fixate on uh, King's speech 
I think it's often, it's considered one of the most widely recognized pieces of rhetoric in American history. Um, and it's really the only thing that anybody has ever heard of about the march. I think we've got to, we should remember that it was, um, it was a great speech. It was the, the purpose of the speech was to rile people up, get them excited, send them home. It was the last speech after a very long day of marching and, and lots of speeches. And so it didn't actually, the purpose of it was not actually to say, this is why we're here, right? This is, this is the agenda. So it's actually a very vague speech. It's uplifting and inspirational, but it doesn't really make specific demands. And the reason for that is because those demands were said over and over and over again in the context of the march. A. Philip Randolph began by laying out the agenda right after King's speech. Baird Rustin came on and read the full list of demands of the march, right? So it's partially that we get this little snippet, but it's actually the least specific and least meaningful snippet in terms of the agenda of the march. Um, and so by focusing on that, you know, and we can debate whether that's, you know, purposeful or, or what, but the, the reality is that it means that very few people know what the march was about, right? They don't, they don't know what the agenda of the march was. They don't know why it was organized. And that's what I try to explain in the book, is sort of what, what got these people here and what did they want? And, um, and, and, uh, and what, what impact did it make? Because it also really did put, um, if it weren't for the March on Washington, 64 Civil Rights Act would not have what's now Title VII, which is the section prohibiting employment discrimination based on race. Many people consider that the core of the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, the most important part of it. And it, it was not on the agenda. It, one of the purposes of the march was to put that, to say this law has to include what they called then an FEPC law, going back to the 1941 march. So I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why we don't know about that broader agenda, but it really, I, I think, is impossible to really understand the importance of the march and the legacy of the march and the purpose of the march, really do honor to the purpose of the march without understanding that it was a march for jobs and freedom, that it was for economic justice and racial equality. So, Will, then let's jump forward. Thinking about the role that Black trade unionists played, the 41 planned march the National Negro Labor Council, the Negro American Labor Council, the March on Washington, and compare that to the most recent upsurge, the Black Lives Matter upsurge, particularly post-Ferguson and post-George Floyd. How do you look at that? I mean, I guess there are two things that I would, I would focus on. One is the way in which, you know, to be frank, the role of working class Black people in setting the agenda for a movement and connecting issues of economic justice and racial equality. Obviously, you know, the, in, in the issues around police brutality are working class issues, right? I mean, it's working people who are the primary uh, targets of police brutality and um, for a lot of reasons are the ones who subjected to it more than, than anyone else. So, and I think that is where the the agenda, I think, really does reflect a, a Black working class agenda. But I think the ability to connect that agenda to things like rights on the 
at the workplace, wages, and other issues related to economic justice is something that there's been, I think that we have a, a less of a clear connection to. And that gets me to the, the second part of, I think, sort of that I would take away from the history, which is the importance of working class leadership of institutions. And one thing that I think is really remarkable about the moment in the 1940s and 1950s is you see the emergence of these black trade unionists, as I talked about, really key community leaders who had bases in not just the trade union movement, but in in their churches and civil rights organizations. And this gave them the ability to not only mobilize people, but to influence the agenda in a way that could actually affect policy, that could change change laws. I think we've seen parts of that, but I, I don't think, I don't know if we've had the same type of, I think, attention to sort of institution building. Um, and in some respects, I think we've seen a rejection of the importance of institution building, people, you know, making the argument that it's more democratic to have these sort of leaderless um, and um, amorphous forms of organization, which I think there's a lot of value to that, but I think we need to recognize the what's lost and not having sort of formal institutions that are led by Black people and I think, importantly, by working class Black people. Now, as you're talking, I thought of a couple of things, Will. Um, in terms of kind of today, seeing, don't say, don't, not seeing the same sort of um, visibility and, and, and power of, of Black unionists and kind of the upsurge, one, I think you have a different type of Black civil society. So we could, we could kind of talk about in the 40s and 50s and 60s, what were kind of the, the pillars of Black civil society, be it unions or churches and those sort of things, right? And because of the age of inequality and the, the radical change in the nature of our society over, overall, those institutions have been battered. And so one, the, an old sort of support for that initiative wasn't there. I think also with that is the issue of ideas. And so you have this idea, as you said, that we need to have this leaderless process and the kind of devalues organization. And it might be more accurate, because I know I'm kind of old, so I'll say maybe more accurate, to say that, that um, it, it, it sees, as, sees the old institutional bases no longer existing, but not look for new ones. So the question, question to me might be, what are the contemporary working class institutions in the black communities? That can be developed, supported, and other ways you want to look at it to bring heft to the movement itself. Because I think that what happens um, without that kind of alternative sense of on the ground stuff, then we stay up in the realm of ideas. And that to me is how you get these less durable victories. Because we have simply the victories because of an event and the mobilization. And it was durable on the ground to keep it sustained more simply isn't there. Um. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's really true that the the sort of the nature of this of the sort of landscape of society looks very different. And so it's hard to make these direct comparisons. I do think that unions remain very important um, vehicles for mobilization. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the, and I think, you know, now it's largely in the 
particularly for black workers, but for lots of workers, the um, the public sector union movement, um, you know, teachers unions in in any city are you know really important vehicles for not just for sort of fighting around school policy and education policy and the condition working conditions of teachers, but also political mobilization on the in those cities. Um, and in many cities, those are you know largely black led institutions. Um, and so I, the the union movement's nowhere near as powerful now as it was in the 1960s. But I think there's still that that important uh, analogy. Um, but I think that 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 part of the the changing landscape has been the erosion of sort of these types of sort of politicized or politicizing um, institutions, places where people make connections across. Um, across their communities, you know, sort of outside of their friend groups or their social groups, um, that they learn political leadership and political organizing and political mobilization um, in ways that they can really start to set political agendas. And I think we do have a, a, a scarcity of those types of organizations that I think it would be helpful, I think, to be mindful to build those and to look for places where we can build them. What do you see, uh, this may be a jump, I'm not sure, but in light of everything that we've been talking about, what, is, what's the, what should the left be doing uh, to build on this kind of history and to address some of the concerns that you're raising about uh, lack of institutions, lack of organization, uh, the, the class character? of much of our movement. What, what do you think, what should we be doing? Well, I mean, I think that, I, I do think that trying to support and nurture and encourage the, you know, the sort of the deepening of these, um, these organizational networks is something that the left, I think, has done successfully in the past. I think in some respects, um, you know, the, the left is doing, I mean, I, I think DSA has been doing a pretty uh, important job in terms of encouraging its own membership and its own supporters to go into the trade union movement, right? Get, take jobs that are, um, that are potential for union jobs to go into the, um, if they're teachers, you know, get, get active in the uh, teachers union. So that type of thing, I think is a, is something that the that the left can do as a sort of a political education and a leadership role. I think that's you know obviously limited, but by the size of the left and the influence of the left. Um, I think you know talking about and exploring the the um, the history of this type of organization and how it can be uh, trying to thinking about ways in which it can be built again. I think is uh, is a role that the left can do. You know, I mean a a, a podcast like this, a publication can do that. Um, so there's a sort of in, an intellectual role that the left can play. But I think, um, I think the you know there's always a tendency on the left to be to sort of for people to see themselves as the sort of inherent leaders of a movement, and I think that's misguided in ways that you know. I think in in that sense, I think you know Afrel Randolph is a model for that. I think he you know. When he was a young activist during World War One, uh, he started a, a magazine. But then, when he got the opportunity to be the sort of facilitator for 
an already existing union, the um, sleeping car porters, they asked him to be their, their spokesperson. And he took it upon himself, you know, over the course of his life to help build that um, movement. But that wasn't something that he came up with and sort of invented. He saw himself as, I think, nurturing and helping to um, facilitate the growth of something that became a tremendously powerful institution. As you were talking, Will, I, I thought about talking just then and earlier um, in this conversation that my takeaway as a non-historian, that one of the values of history is to outline and impose important questions to be answered. You know, and so, so when I hear you talk about this, what happened in the 40s, happened in the 60s, you've talked about the importance of organizations. You've talked about the importance of kind of this seamless integration of black folks in the workforce and black folks in the community. You've, you've talked about one strength that was developed was developing relationships and leadership development in the course of struggle. I mean, those are the important like lessons learned, how do you apply it, right? And, and so I think what happens sometimes if we look at history, I'll call it um, incomplete history, is you focus on ideas and people. Not, not those underlying things around structural organizations. And so when we think about the March on Washington and go beyond just, I have a dream speech, we might hear about how you know, Malcolm called it the, the farce on Washington, okay? Or we may hear about how people try to, to, to people rewrote John Lewis's speech, okay? But we, we focus on those things, not how do we get people from Chicago to D.C. And how do we do that? And what would it take to do that both mechanically but also relationship-wise? As we focus on ideas was incredibly important, but that's only one part of the story. And so I think it's important to raise other questions, not just the idea critique of things, but how do we actually move things? How do we actually build power? And I think that if you go to answer those questions, it may shape how you actually see the world itself. And so I think that to me is one of the values and lessons of history. Um, yeah, it's reflect. This is good. Um, I have a question. I don't know how much time we have, Steve, but um, in the years subsequent to the 63 March, the Negro American Labor Council seemed to decline. Uh, at some point, I guess it changed its name, and then some of its members at some point played a role in the building of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. But what do you see as what were the, the, the sources of that decline and particularly given what was happening in the movement as a whole, why would an organization like that start to uh, uh, vanish? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're right that I, I think in some respects, I think it's fair to consider the CBTU as, you know, a continuation of the Negro American Labor Council. So I don't think that, you know, it completely disappeared. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the, the really important things that the CBTU was able to do, in some ways, I think, grew out of its roots in the Negro American Labor Council. I think particularly the role that the CBTU played in the fight against apartheid and connecting, building, you know, connecting the, the South African fight against apartheid to people in the U.S. and making those connections, I think, could not have happened uh, without the, that sort of continuity between the Negro American Labor Council and the CBTU. So I don't, I don't think that there's a complete decline. Um, 
But there's certainly, I mean, in part, there's a sort of a split uh, that is largely between A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rustin, who, you know, remain really allied to the to the AFL-CIO. And in some ways, I think, get kind of co-opted by it. I mean, the, so the, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, you know, gets pulled within the AFL-CIO uh, in ways that the Negro American Labor Council had always maintained a sort of independence. And that's in part why others, Cleve, Cleveland Robinson and um, others, form this, you know, this the CBTU as a counter in some ways to the A. Philip Randolph Institute. Um, but that, you know, it leads it divided, right? And, and in some ways that weakens the, the broader uh, institution um, you also see, I mean, that's the moment at which, you know, union density just plummets. So right, at, you know, starting in the 1970s um, and a lot of the influence that the Negro American Labor Council had was the due to the really high levels of union density in black communities. And so as that starts to decline, it, it, it weakens that trajectory. It would be interesting to map out, Will, is the black folks and their unions, they're kind of the backbone of the of the march on Washington. And what happened to those unions in the 70s and so forth? So you mentioned yeah. the needle trades, right? Garment workers, decline. Right. Auto workers, right. decline. Steel workers, decline. I mean, ironically, the, you know, the sleeping car porters remained a really influential role, had an influential role in the march on Washington. There weren't any sleeping car porters in 1963, right? I mean, actually working as sleeping car porters, right? The trains were all gone. Um, but so so there was this shift in the, you know, in the economy and in the workplace that really affected these institutions. I mean, that's why you see the important role of um, the public sector unions in the 70s taking off. I mean, it's, it's AFSCME, the Municipal Employees Union, that hosts the founding convention of the CBTU. Um, and it's Bill Lucy, who, you know, at the time was seen as the sort of next president of AFSCME, uh, who is, you know, takes the leadership and helps to nurture the beginning of the CBTU and becomes the, the, the director of the CBTU. Um, so that, in some respects, you know, reflects that sort of changing, that demographic change in the workforce. Got it. Um, we could talk for hours, by the way. Um, a closing comment that I want to begin to, as I say, land this plane. I've often thought that the Coalition of Black Trade Union, the CBTU, is one of the manifestations of black power in the labor movement amongst black working people. And that'd be a fascinating thing to explore. But let's just say, next episode. Um, I do want to ask you, man, if you kind of close things up, what's your vision of black freedom? That's a big question. I, I actually have to say that I'm skeptical of the idea of freedom. I mean, I think that we are we are social creatures and we are not individuals. And I think um, in many respects, I guess my understanding of freedom is that we have um, the, the, the social networks and supports that we need to live a decent life. And that's some people might not some people might call that dependence because we are interdependent. Um, so I, I think in some ways, I think, you know, I take uh, this question, I think A. Philip Randolph had a, a really interesting take on this. Actually, in his speech 
at the March on Washington. And he talked about the goal of creating a society. He said, we're never going to be free until we have a society where people are valued over property. And he said that black people, you know, we have a particular perspective on this because we are people who have been turned into property and treated as property. And so the he he sort of characterized the black freedom movement as a movement to value people over property. And that's why black people are at the leadership of it, but it's not something that only uh, applies to black people. It's, you know, something that I think we all have a stake in. So I would call that part of a view of freedom, by the way, but that's been another conversation too, Bill, by the way. Okay, Will. Um, man, what music gets you going, man? I think music is important to me personally. So I'm trying to develop what I call the soundtrack for our liberation. So what's your contribution to that soundtrack, man? Okay, I've been listening to Mon Laferte. She's a, a Chilean songwriter. Uh, so really interesting mix of pop and rock and all sorts of Latin music. So. Say her name again? Mon Laferte. M-O-N-L-A-F-E-R-T-E. Okay, I got to check it out. That's really good, man. Um, I know you write books. What books are you reading, man? <laughs> uh, so I just, um, I just had an, I did an interview with Olufemi Taiwo about his new book, Reconsidering Reparations. We published a, a transcript of the interview in Descent today. So oh, um, cool. check it out. Very good, very good. Well, this has been great, man. We, we kind of lost touch during, during the pandemic. I'm glad... We can reconnect, and this has been really great. Um, so, real well, thanks for coming on, Bill. This is your last, last show you hosted, man. Any closing thoughts for the masses, man? I, I get rid of you, one replace you. Well, yeah, actually, I do. So, first, thanks for having me on. I think that what I really hope that people come away with after this interview is appreciating the importance of organization and institutions. I'll be less diplomatic than you will. I think without organization, we have nothing other than talk. And I think that one of the things that we have to really consider in the aftermath of the response to the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter uprisings and protests is that there was incredible mobilization and very little organization built. And we're paying the price now with the counterattack from the right, for which many of us have been really unprepared. And so I think that the lessons that you were drawing, Will, are incredibly invaluable. And I would encourage you to be less diplomatic because I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, many people are saying, well, we don't need organizations so much. And that's a wonderful thought in science fiction. But in reality, it holds no place. So, Steve, thanks for having me on, man. Always, man. Bill, thanks for being co-host. Will, thanks for coming on, man. And um, that's all for now. Thanks to you both. In looking at the value of history, people often paraphrase George Satyana by saying some version of those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Or they paraphrase Karl Marx saying basically that History repeats itself. The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. Well, I don't believe the history actually repeats itself. My preferred Marx quote is, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. 
For me, the value of history is to point out lessons and maybe, more importantly, to present basic themes and or concepts that underlie past events. Our task is to take those lessons, themes, and concepts and creatively apply them to our world today as we fight to improve the world. I love talking with Will Jones. I have read his wonderful book, The Martian Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and Forgotten History of Civil Rights. But this was the first time we sat down and discussed it at length. It was really important to hear his emphasis on the strength of black union leaders. One, their connection to powerful organizations and institutions, and two, their capacity to build the 63 Martian Washington because of the power of those organizations and the relationships black unionists developed with each other and other community spaces. The key question is, what are the 21st century organizations and institutions that have power and exist as sites where relationships are forged between labor and community and leadership development and training occurs? Without these sites, any victories arising from mobilizations will be transitory. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we are launching a three-week fundraising campaign. Our goal is to get 60 new sustainers. Since we started Black Work Talk, most of the labor has been volunteer. However, we have had some important recurring monetary outlays, and those costs have gone up. In addition, we are already thinking about season three. We want to make big changes with that season changes where we expand on the single guest interview format and include episodes that go deeper into campaigns, organizations, and neighborhoods, interviewing multiple key players who are driving efforts to build power for black working people and radically change our political economy. Covering a higher cost, exploring new ways to identify and elevate new strategies and organizations. This requires more revenue, and that means more support from you. What we are asking is that 60 of you step up and become new sustainers. And of course, current sustainers, feel free to raise your contribution if you're so moved. Please go to Patreon at www.patreon.com. Look for Black Work Talk and sign up to become monthly contributors. If you can only make a one-time contribution only, that is fine. Whatever works for you, works for me. Till next time, stay safe and be well.